Anybody missing keys? Is there anybody missing keys? I'm just joking because I know whose they are. And they will cost one banana cream pie for this. Oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. I shouldn't do that to my daughter-in-law. Although she makes a killer banana cream pie. And uh, she kind of won my heart, not in a weird way, but in a healthy way, that uh, she had a tradition, there's a tradition in her family, that if you go and hunt on somebody's property, that you bring a gift for that experience. And so when her and Robbie first kind of decided to, uh, I don't know what we want to call it. Oh yeah, that's it. Um, She came during hunting season and I woke up to her walking through the kitchen door early before light, to her walking through the kitchen door with this massive banana cream pie. And I'm sitting there thinking, we could do this wedding right now. (laughs) She's awesome. So I tease her a lot about that. She has another key thing. Ah, that's another time. For a long time, whenever Katie would come over, she'd leave her keys on top of her car. And I thought, that's kind of strange. But it was her way of not forgetting where they were. It locked, it locked itself, and you didn't want them to get locked inside the car. It's a good thing you didn't leave them on top of the church today. Yeah, never mind. All right, let's move on. Hey, if you haven't been here before, we just welcome you and glad that you're here. We're, we're a little short-handed because we have this little wedding going on this later this afternoon. And, and uh, there's been a lot of preparation, a lot of hard work that's gone into that. And... Uh, so we've just been praying for, this young couple has really had a lot of pushback, it seems like. They happened to kind of tumble off the road in their car after premarital counseling this last week and, and getting a, get a, kind of scraped and banged up. And as, as I recall, the story that was brought to me by the bride-to-be said that the analogy for that, for that can, I, can I share this story? Oh, for, for later today? All right, well, I'll cut it off right there. I would just want to, I'll, I'll tease this way, is to say that the, the, the accident that they ended up getting into was a live demonstration of the analogy that was used in that evening's. Is that fair enough? Can I say it that way? Okay, good. You bet. You might as well. I interrupt myself more than anybody else. Somebody else's turn. I'm... Getting better at just putting the ball on the tee, walking away. It's not really my nature. My nature is to see it blast off into orbit. Uh, that's good. Anyway, uh, welcome if, if you're new here. And, uh, of course, we've been praying for Dennis. I'm, gl- I'm so glad that you're feeling great. And, and we do have a lot to pray about. I mean, we have, we have fellows that are, you know, often on, uh, fire, in fire camp and... and uh, harm's way other people in harm's way as well and uh, so we just hold up our brothers and sisters in the lord in that way and and definitely when it comes to health related issues as i sat to um, type up my notes this week um, i always do something kind of in my notes just you know i type up like the passage that i feel that god wants me to speak in and uh, it's kind of like doing a little bit of a term paper i put my name at the top and i put the date next to my name so i remember it uh, if I ever want to go back and look at previous sermons. And the date that I typed it up was nine eleven twenty, which, of course, is just the other day. It was the 19th anniversary, if you want to call it, an anniversary of sorts, uh, 
19 years to the date, the attacks on the World Trade Center in New York City, and the Pentagon outside of Washington, D.C., and the uh, Flight 93 that crashed out in a field in western Pennsylvania. The cause of the crash was due to men rising up against evil, an evil plot um, to destroy our country, to impact our country. They say, although they can't say with 100% um, certainty, but they say that that flight number 93, that the flight path that it was working towards before the scuffle in the cockpit would lead uh, flight number th 93 back to kind of the east, a little southeast, through the Cumberland Gap, right into Washington, D.C., the target either being the White House uh, or congressional buildings of some sort. And, I mean, that's their best, their best estimate. I was thinking about all these sorts of things in regard to, you know, evil. I'm thinking of them in regard to, years ago I gave a sermon and quoted uh, one fellow that was on flight number 93. I read the book. Uh, his name is Todd Beamer. Sticks out in my mind because he's the guy that when they said, hey, we were hearing these reports. They, they didn't worry about their cell phones on the planes. They just jumped on them and started talking to people, either leaving messages or getting information. And they developed a plan. They said, hey, we, we, can't, let this, we can't let this continue. Like, we have to stand up now and make a stand before it gets worse, and it's likely that we're all going to die in the process. Todd Beamer was the guy that, once they got done praying, said, let's roll. He's the guy that said, let's roll. And that sticks in my mind for a lot of reasons. One, because he was a man of action. He was a man of sacrifice. Um, to best estimates, he's a godly man. They all put themselves in harm's way, not just him and the people on Flight 93, but also everyone that was in that metro area of New York City and Washington, D.C., around the Pentagon, people putting themselves in harm's way, many, many, many paying the ultimate sacrifice for their willingness to serve their fellow brothers and sisters or fellow countrymen. And many are still paying that price yet today. Uh, I watched a clip the other night about how the effects of a lot of the debris and uh, whatnot out of the World Trade Center has had this long lingering cancerous effect on many that were there, many that, that just uh, were in that dust and smoke and, and ash, um, but many putting themselves in harm's way. No matter how we slice it, evil is present, right? Would we all agree to that? Like evil is present in our world hasn't gone away. There's probably been times where it's been either greater or lesser, but it hasn't gone away. Evil's present. We live in a dangerous world in a lot of respects. And as we've been going through this idea of growing in our faith, growing in our faith requires that uh, we have a biblical worldview on evil, that we have a biblical worldview on evil. Now, years ago, and <clears throat> I was working construction kind of in the off-season, and uh, uh, all of the guys on the crew were all believers. It was a blessing. I mean, it was, it was different than Reuben's experience. Uh, we all, at lunchtime, we opened up our lunch boxes, we prayed, and as we were eating, a lot of times, almost every day, we'd open up some passage in the Bible. We all had little either Gideon Bibles, thank you Gideons back here, by the way, or just these little tiny. Uh, I couldn't do that now because the font's so small that I um, couldn't look at a Bible that small 
without really getting into it. But that being said, we had great conversation. One of those conversations that day was about a piece that we had listened to on the radio going to work over in Priest River, Idaho, where we were building a house. And one of those conversations was is that science is trying to prove that there's an evil gene, uh, that mankind carries a specific gene in their DNA that bends people towards evil acts, some more than others. And uh, we were kind of listening to it with a biblical worldview saying, duh, the Bible says that we all have an evil gene, <laughs> that we all are bent towards it. We're all, we're all bent towards sin. Let's call it what it is. Quit trying to squirt, uh, you know, skirt around what the Bible said is true, what the Bible says is true, and what the Bible said is true for a long time. We're trying to skirt around it and pin it on a genetic issue. Let's call it what it is. And the Bible also has a response, of course, to the evil that exists in our world. Last week we looked at a couple of passages, Hebrews 11 and Numbers chapters 13 and 14. Uh, Michaela reminded me this morning that I've been stacking a lot of Bible into these sermons, and I don't apologize for that because I think that like this is our... This is our our, our well of life is right here. Our, our source for living the Christian life is right here. Uh, the hope that we have in Christ is right here. This was wrote so that we as Christ followers would take this and encourage other people to consider Christ. This is all points towards who Jesus is. Jesus definitely dealt with evil in his day. Last week we looked at this quick contrast between faithfulness out of Hebrews 11 and faithlessness out of Numbers 13 and 14. Faithfulness, faithfulness to follow God despite the odds or opposition, that's faithfulness, it's following God despite the odds or opposition is the description we find of those in Hebrews 11. Faithlessness combined with an unwillingness to give up this particular thing we talked, I talked a lot about last week because it's such an issue. It's so embedded in our culture. It's so embedded even in our own thinking right here. It is for me. I think if we were fair, we would all say, we, I struggle with that. And that is, is that faithlessness combined with a victim identity. That I am the victim of somebody else's issues. I'm the victim I'm the victim, I'm the victim, I'm always the victim. And not to say that there aren't people that aren't victimized. And I wanted to make a clear definition about their distinction rather, not definition, a clear distinction that I recognize that there's been many that have been victimized, that you have uh, struggled and I have struggled as a result of other people's sin. Uh, that is true. I don't minimize that in any way. Uh, yet... Christ came that we could be free from that, free from other people's sin as much as free from our own. And uh, that's the, the beauty, if you will, of the storyline of Christ. So faithlessness combined with an unwillingness to give up their victim identity is the description of Israel when facing their giants in Canaan according to Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And what are some of those giants? I, I hope that, um, and I, I'm not going to go back and re-preach that sermon, but I hope that you would uh, take some time this week 
to write yourself a list of what are those giants in your life. Not who are those giants, like it's somebody, but what are those giants years ago. When we very first came to church here at Addy, we actually, one of the very first sermons we, we, and Dennis and I talked about this after last week's sermon, Dennis preached a sermon on Numbers 13 uh, about some of these giants. And I very clearly, and we were kind of reminiscing about it, very clearly remember him talking about some of these giants of bitterness, of envy, uh, these giants uh, that are possessive, uh, that hold on so tight that there's no room for grace, mercy in our lives, the type of descriptors. So what are some of those giants? To move into today real fastly, and I know that time is going to get away from me, I know that many of us have a wedding to prepare for. Um, Moving into today, the antidote to the victim mentality is to embrace the promises uh, that are clearly found in Romans 8 and 1 John 5. That was last week. And in doing so, and in doing so, we... Paul tells us in Romans 8 that we're more than conquerors, right? We're more than conquerors. The idea is, is to be an overcomer. If you are in Christ, you are, you are classified as an overcomer. And you say, Mark, I don't always feel like an overcomer. It doesn't always seem like the experience that I'm going through right now, would, would you could step back and say, well, there's a guy that's an overcomer. I get that. I understand that. It doesn't seem like we're always on the winning side of some situation. I understand that. That doesn't change how God sees you. You guys get that? That doesn't change how God sees you. And so we are called to be, as we grow in our faith, as God makes us stronger, we're called to be overcomers. So really the chapter that I want to dive in today is Romans chapter 12. You can turn there. We're going to spend our whole time in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 has got several famous verses. I quote them often. I refer to them often. Of course, verse 1, right from the get-go of Romans chapter 12, is present your bodies in a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, so on and so forth. Uh, The old Christian adage, I, I I, I almost get tired of this joke that, you know, people say, well, the problem with the living sacrifice, you crawl down off the altar. Uh, Albeit true... I, that's a lot of Christian-easy language that, that people that aren't believers are like, what are you talking about? Right? But God calls us to this idea of being a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. Of course, verse 2 is the one that I refer to quite often. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'm just only bringing parts of each verse. That is critical. That is key to growing in your faith. Romans 12.2. The interesting thing about Romans chapter 12, though, is that Paul puts a bold summary at the very end of the chapter. A lot of times writers will put what they want to talk about up at the top, and then they'll fill in all of the blanks. They'll fill in all of the outline coming in after that. Paul takes almost a, a 180 idea of that outline, and he puts the bold statement at the very bottom And he builds to that statement. Paul's bold statement is simply verse 21 of chapter 12 in the book of Romans. Do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's a couple of quick observations you can write down as we start into Romans chapter 12. One, Paul commands us to not be overcome, implying that it's possible for believers to be overcome by evil. So he says, do not be. Do not be. Don't put yourself in the position to be. Don't put yourself in, 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 in harm's way in that sense. Don't be overcome by evil. Rather, we have this command, really, to overcome evil with good. So if you read this chapter backwards, you would naturally ask these, this question. How do we overcome evil with good? If you started in verse 21 and worked with that, say, how do we overcome evil with good? All of Romans 12 is about answering this question. As David has encouraged us in, in the announcements and, and, and in, uh, edification to gravitate towards coming Sunday nights, to embrace Sunday nights, uh, he had a great observation that the whole of the book of Romans is really one big book of FAQs, frequently asked questions. And this is kind of one of those out of chapter 12. How do we overcome evil with good? Before we dive into seeing what those answers are and the applications, obviously, that go with them, Romans, <clears throat> from Romans 12, let's be reminded a little bit of the context of when the book of Romans, and actually First Peter is a good parallel. Um, I'm not going to speak too much of it, but I believe it's First Peter chapter 4. Is, uh, was, they were written in that same kind of a time frame within a few years. Scholars believe that the book of Romans was written between 55 and 58 A.D. Most scholars date First Peter in the years 62 to 63. We'll get into that in a second. But during this time in the, Roman Emperor, in the Roman Empire, a lot of things were happening. They'd been through quite a few different emperors, and now they come to a particular emperor named Nero. Um, Nero was an extremely self-absorbed man who had an appetite for grandeur and a bent towards violence. It's said by Roman historians that he would hold... Uh, I, I, I caught this piece... Uh, this is interesting. He would hold singing contests, Nero would. He'd invite a big crowd. He'd invite other you know, people that were well-known singers, uh, you name it. And he, they would hold these singing contests. And uh, it was kind of an interesting phenomenon that people realized after a few contests that it just seemed like Nero always won those contests. There was nobody that was a better singer than he was. Um, and I, I'm not convinced that he was such a great singer he was just the emperor. Who's going to vote against the emperor, right? Historians also claim that uh, he started the fire of Rome in order to create space for a new grand emperor uh, mansion complex. The idea of this complex was uh, this huge mansion was not just a, you know, we need 10 acres to build this massive, you know, structure. Uh, the idea there the things that were talked about and the things that were brought out of history was that we're talking 300 acres. That's the size of my whole farm. You'd need that much to build that big of a mansion. 
In that process, Nero quickly blamed the Christians that lived in Rome for starting the fire. Though there's no evidence to this, well, there's plenty of evidence that uh, it was somewhat of a red herring in order to take the heat off of him by, pro by providing a distraction. And in that process, Nero began widespread persecution of Christians by literally every method possible. Uh, church historians say that Christians were thrown to the lions. They were, they were thrown in the Colosseum for, for sport. Uh, they, were, they were killed. They were burned at the stake. They were put up on poles doused with oil to use as uh, street lights in Rome, to light the streets in Rome. He had a massive disdain for Christians. It's also stated in history that some of these Christians uh, stood trial, and this is the interesting part. Just measure it up about what's uh, next to what's going on in our culture. It said that some of the Christians stood trial, but when they actually got down to it, it was not for starting the fire in Rome. Rather, it was crimes against humanity. It was In other words, you, Christian, you are a threat to our society. What you believe, what you preach, how you live, what you stand for is a threat to Rome. It's a threat. You are a threat. Everybody that thinks and believes, everybody that stands alongside you as a fellow Christian, such as you call yourselves, you are a threat to society. You're a threat against humanity. So in that context... How would we answer this question? How do you overcome that kind of evil? How do you go about starting a process where, where you can come against the number one person in the world, the most famous person in the world, the richest person in the world, by far, the world's number one leader? How do you come against that type of evil as it's weighing down on you? How's it done? Do we gather support? We form a coalition? Create a march or a protest? These seem to be fairly um, common avenues of trying to get our point across in these days. Does God work through a moral, a moral majority? That was the popular idea in the 1980s when I was young. Or, rather, does he work through a remnant? Does God work through a few to accomplish his purposes? What's more effective, the excitement of a national revival or the depth of personal revival? We talked about this yesterday a little bit, and you missed an awesome men's breakfast that was, that was really, um, in a good way, in a great way, really spirited conversation. It really was. And this concept came up. Uh, I will cheat and tell you that I was one of the ones that brought this idea to the table in the conversation, but it fit in perfectly with where Les was going uh, with the study and where some of the other guys had some awesome feedback about how do, we, how, how do we address where we are in Christianity as men. And uh, we're talking about the things of the heart. We're talking about issues of the heart. But we often think that if we can create momentum in a group, that it will be easier for the individual. That's worldly thinking. Now, there is some benefit to that in a way. 
We can create a culture where living righteously is, is, becomes a norm, where living right and biblically becomes the norm. And, and as kids come up in underneath that, there's some, some safety and security in that way. I'm not saying that that's wrong or bad. But oftentimes, oftentimes we substitute the personal revival for, of what needs to happen, God working in my heart, God working in my life, God dealing with me and my issues, me and my sin. We substitute, we, we don't face that giant because we're hoping that we can get a big push, a big revival that will make it easier for me to face that giant. See, the bravest guys are the guys on the front line. The bravest people are the ones that are out front that are going to take the first spear, not those that are in the back working logistics, not those that are in the back, you know, as a fallback plan. But are we willing as Christ followers to be like the Roman believers in the first century and stand out in the front despite what may or may not happen? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. And are we more prone to waiting for a big movement to make my small movement easier or am I willing to, are we willing to take those steps of faith in our own personal walk that would then go out the other way? See, transformed people are contagious in their faith. They affect and infect the people that are around them. That's Reuben's story, right? That's Reuben's story. Listen to the progression of how at one time it was really kind of bad and like, a hassle, and a pain. And I've been there. I understand what he's talking about, to have people tease you because you're different or people to mock you because you're different. But over time, in standing firm and a willingness to stand out in the front, God did a crazy work. It's awesome. It's a great testimony. It fits right in for today. So as you jump into Romans chapter 12, this is what the transform looks like as it overcomes evil. I'm going to use this terminology. Paul states these marks of a Christian in Romans chapter 12. They're marks of a Christian. They're what a Christian looks like. They're what a, a Christian under the persecution of an evil emperor looks like. It's how they act. It's how they carry on. It's how they interact with one another. First one is sacrificial living. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Rather than the, the Christianese way of thinking about a living sacrifice, just put, the, put those two words in reverse order and ask the question, am I living sacrificially? Do I have, living, do I have sacrificial living as a normal part of who I am? Do I sacrifice for those that are around me? Do I sacrifice for God? Holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Some translations say, which is your spiritual worship. We live sacrificially and holy, and that's acceptable to God. Verse 2, Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove 
what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Do we live with a transformed mind? I stayed often, and I'll do it again today. Are you the same person, essentially, that you were before you became a believer? If that's true of you, you've not embraced a process of transformation, right? God does not intend to leave us where we were in our mindsets, in our, in our ways, in our understandings. He wants to transform us, and He does that by renewing our mind. He does that by changing our thinking. He does that by transforming who we are into who He is. It's a process, and it takes time, and it's painful, and it's hard to come to the understanding that, wow, the way that I used to think, or the way that maybe in a current scenario, in the, in the present, if, if me when I was 19, I can think of several examples, wow, the way that I'm processing this is really not biblical. I need to make some changes that reflect who God is in my life. I can't dabble around in the world over here and, and then dabble around in, in the kingdom of God. It's kind of like one or the other. And we all come to that crossroad. We all come to that spot on the fence where we're pushed one way or the other, or we choose to jump one way or the other. Some of us need a little bit of a nudge. That was truly my case. Are we in the process of having a transformed mind? Number three, sober thinking. Sober thinking. Verse 3, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Remember our overall and our overarching ideas is that these are all marks of an overcomer. This is how an overcomer thinks and behaves and carries on. Are we thinking soberly? The verse goes on to say, As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith, for we have many members in one body. We're a multi-gifted church. We're a multi-gifted church. And the church at large is a multi-gifted church. Right? And, and Paul inserts this because <clears throat> I believe he inserts this to give a broader context of what's going on around them. Around these Roman Christians who are... Fo- who are uh, you know, the weight of the world's kind of barreling in on them, so to speak. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. We got many members in one body, but he goes on to say, but all the members do not have the same function. We're multi-gifted, we're multifunctional. Verse 5 says, so we being many are one body in Christ. A plug for unity, a statement of unity to a, a church that was really going to come under fire. And individually members of one another. Verse 6 says, Having then gifts differing according to the graces is given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. Let's put them into play in the church. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. If ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. And he who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy, shows mercy with cheerfulness. 
Use what God has given you. Use what gift, what talent, what, what whatever that God has blessed and given to you to be a blessing to somebody else, to be a blessing to the group, to be a blessing to the group. That is one of the ways that we are overcomers. Because I don't have to do it all. Around here, I don't have to do it all. It's awesome. Because so many of you are doing what God has gifted and called you to do. And I just want to stop and say, continue in that. If you're an encourager, man, go tell you run out of words. Pick up a few more and keep running, right? If you're a giver, if God has blessed you in that capacity, continue to give. Give liberally. Be a generous. We should actually, we should all be generous. Because whatever we have, it's not really ours. It's just ours to steward. So we can be generous with, with it all. Right? Whatever that gift is, continue to use it to be a blessing to other people. That's how, as a group, we become overcomers. Verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. The fifth attribute, the fifth mark of, of an overcomer is to be truly loving. Love that's pure is not hypocritical. It's the same tomorrow as it is today. It's the same yesterday as it is today. It's always the same. So we need to be truly loving. We need to be truly caring in that sense. Don't set yourself up in a sense to be turned off, be a turnoff to other people, but let love be without hypocrisy. He goes on to say, and he comes back to his main theme, Paul does in verse 9, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. We should have an importance to evil. There should be things that we get uh, righteously anger, angry about. And that's not a bad thing. I think for too long the church has been pushed down, softened down. Don't rise up against this. Don't rise up against that evil. You know, be, be soft. We need men be especially. Gentle. Star of things that are wrong in our society as far as Christians are concerned. But it's wrong on both ends of the spectrum. Both ends of the spectrum. Life issues are up to God. Right? Life issues are up to God on both ends. Coming and going. Let's respect that. Let's honor that. Right? Let's not dive into a societal viewpoint that when somebody is burnt out of usefulness, it's time for them to go. Because that's where our culture is going. Right? They're no longer useful. They're no longer beneficial. We're not living in Germany in the 30s. That became a national mindset. I hope that you guys all remember this little history lesson that in, the, in the Europe, especially in Germany, that became the national mindset. Well, you know, how much use can they really be? So out they go. It's a travesty. It's evil. 
It's sin at the highest level. That we fail to recognize that somebody is created in God's image. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Relational kindness, number six. Relational kindness. The outside world, no matter how much they may have opinions about the church that we feel are wrong, no matter how much they may have a view or a perspective that we think is weird or tweaked or inaccurate, one thing I will say is they are watching how we treat one another. They do. They watch how we treat one another. And is it real? Is it genuine? Can they work through issues? Can't they? Do they? Don't they? Do they overcome differences? Do they support one another? Is it a safe environment for me to consider in that way? Do I know that if I venture down this pathway towards Christ and, and become a part of a fellowship, is it going to be healthy for me in the long run? Or is it going to be a henpeck? Is it going to be divisive? Is it going to be troublesome? They may not have the right biblical worldview, but they are asking in and of themselves a lot of the right questions. We need to be mindful of that. We need to understand that. And to overcome as a church, is to overcome as Christ followers, how we treat one another, how we have relational kindness towards one another, how we're kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love makes a difference. It may not always seem like it makes a difference, but it makes a difference. Let's move on. Part of that relational kindness is preferring one another. In honor giving preference, verse 11, or <clears throat> excuse me, verse 10, in honor giving preference to one another, preferring others, another mark of an overcomer, Verse 11, not lagging in diligence. We're going to get into the short list here. Not lagging in diligence. Not being lazy. Not being apathetic. Not, uh, not not caring. If I can use not twice in the same sentence. I don't know. You English professors can figure that out. We have a lot of that in our culture. And in, unfortunately, it's, 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 it's embedded itself into the church. This idea of being apathetic to what's going on around us. We should be deeply moved by the things that are going on around us. We should be deeply moved by those that are, that are searching and seeking and looking for life's answers. We should be uh, diligent, diligent in the discipleship in the church. We should be diligent in our leadership men and our families. We should be diligent in the way that we treat our wives. We should be diligent as parents in the raising of our kids. Not lagging, the Bible says, but being diligent in these areas. Right? All relational to one another. Fervent in spirit. There's another translation. The NIV uses this word. Uh, zeal. Uses the word zeal. So we should be diligent, but we should be have zeal. We should be excited about what's going on. Not like... Well, <clears throat> God's working. Mm. Mm. 
Mm. You guys get the point. Mm. I mean, if I had a recliner, I'd, about this time I'd pull the cord, right? <laughs> no, zeal. We should be excited about what's going on. We should be excited about today. Today's our day to come together as a greater family, a greater family to worship. So we should be excited about that. It's like, hey, we get to spend time. We get to see so-and-so. We get to fellowship. We get to pray. We get to praise. We get to study together. It's awesome. This day should be just like the highlight of our week in a way, right? Not like, uh, I got to go to church today. I need any excuse. Ah, I got a hangnail. I better stay home, right? But I got other things that are more important. There's a lot of discussion about that. There has been a lot of discussion at the leadership level about some of these issues, but we should be zealous. Fervent in spirit, the word says, in our service to the Lord. We should be excited about what we're doing in service to the Lord. That's what Paul's getting at. Because that excitement is going to carry you chapter to chapter. Not that trouble won't come. Not that these guys wouldn't face heavy persecution. But they were excited about, like, what's what's God going to do now? And what's he going to do now? And we go through that, and like, what's he going to do now? It's it's like, I can't wait to turn the next chapter to see where God's going in our lives. That type of excitement, that type of zeal, that type of fervor is a mark of those who overcome evil and embrace good. And they overcome evil with good. Where was I at? Verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, and distributing the needs to the saints, given to hospitality. So we're always rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, steadfast in prayer. Right? Steadfast in prayer. Don't give up. Steadfast just simply means that you just stay on course. You don't give up. You don't get swayed. You don't turn left or right. Right? You stay on the course. You stay on the trail. It's important that we stay on the trail in prayer. Right? It's important, as Paul wrote, that we're patient in tribulation. It's important, verse 13, that we're distributing to the needs of the saints. That simply means taking care of one another. Somebody has a need, Let it be known. Don't let pride stop you from letting your needs be known. Don't let embarrassment stop you from letting your needs be known. Let them be known. Because we have, as a calling, as a command, all I would say is a command, we have a command to take care of one another. Distributing to the needs of the saints because we're given to hospitality. Because we enjoy to be around one another. Because we enjoy spending time together. So we're hospitable. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. All marks of an overcomer. An overcomer is somebody who blesses those who persecute, persecutes them. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. He 
We've got to celebrate and we have to mourn. We walk through life together. This is all part of Paul's big statement of unity in the church and doing life together means that we celebrate, like today, we're going to celebrate with a young couple who's venturing out together. No more after today will they be just Wyatt and just Rose. They're going to be Wyatt and Rose. Linked together. The Bible calls them one flesh. They'll be one person. Right? So we're going to celebrate today. We've had other times where we've deeply mourned. Deeply mourned the loss of those who have been a part of our fellowship. That, you know, one day they're with us and the next day they're actually having the best day that they could ever possibly have. They're in the presence of the Lord. Think of old Nolan being before the Lord right now. He's not struggling to get around. But we need to bless, we need to celebrate and we need to mourn together. And Paul's bringing some conclusion. Verse 16, he says, Be of the same mind toward one another. So we need to think alike. We need to have the same worldview. Be of the same mind towards one another. We need to work hard in areas where we have differing ideas, yet maintain unity. And I'm telling you, it is tough. It is hard work. It's not easy. It's hard to maintain friendships when people have a different view. If they would just think the way I think, it would just make life easier. Amen? The reality is, is that's not how we, that's not the world we live in. That's not even in the church that we live in. So we have to work hard at this idea of being like-minded. Being like-minded. The pathway into being like-minded, really, is to be humble. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion, verse 17. Excuse me, verse 16. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And often quoted... An often quoted verse, uh, I fear sometimes that that, if it is possible as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I fear oftentimes that that verse gets used to step away in apathy and not really deal with division, not really deal with conflict. A lot of times it's like, yeah, I'm just going to go over here because it's easier to go over here in peace and not be honest with my brother or my sister. I'm going to go over here and, and, and we're going to, we're going to pretend peace, because I'll just stay over in my corner, and, 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 they, and they can stay in their corner, and it'll look like we have unity. That's not unity. A lot of times it gets used as an excuse. It can't be so with us. Verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Rather, give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God's our avenger. God's our avenger. Take a seat. 
Paul's saying take a seat. When you want to rise up and force something to happen, when you want to rise up and get payback, when you want to rise up in, 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 in your heart, in your mind, with an attitude, God really says, take a seat. I'll take care of it for you in only a way that I can take care of it for you. God's our avenger. We have to know that those things are true. When we are wronged, we need to stop and just let God work. I'm not saying that we don't ever stand up. I'm just simply saying that ultimately we have to realize that Romans 12 says is that God has this battle fully in mind and He has our back. Actually, He has more than just our back. He's out in front of us. Verse 20, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. I remember years ago, <clears throat> in a different church, um, we, had a particular, we had two people that were in conflict. Two people in leadership in conflict. Happened to be a lady and a guy, not married, um, but they were both in church leadership, and they were button heads. And they were button heads over not what ministry, but how to go about the ministry that was going on. What's the best way to accomplish that? And and how are we going to walk it out? And uh, I was a pretty young guy sitting on a board at the time, and so I'm kind of, you know, leaning back in my chair. I was like, I'm going to sit on the bench and watch this play out rather than really engage. It was not a real good mindset for me. But as I did that, actually, uh, God was working in both of those people uh, to bring some unity together uh, amongst them because their disunity was affecting really eventually the whole church. And uh, it was going a bad way. Anyway, long story short, uh, God spoke to this lady in a, in a way that uh, he, she, he told her essentially the same verse. If, you're hung, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And I remember talking to her saying, she's like, kind of started to argue with God. Well, he's not really my enemy. Like, aren't we kind of like both believers? No, God kept pressing this idea into her mind to be a blessing. And so that's exactly what she did. Back in those days, and uh, Mom, Tammy, we were all part of this, they had a homeschool group that met up at Summit, a lot like our Tuesday homeschool group that meets here. And uh, she started making cinnamon rolls for that Monday homeschool group. And uh, she, in making those cinnamon rolls, the thought occurred to her as she's, I don't know how you make cinnamon rolls, but whatever you do to make cinnamon rolls, don't, don't we need a demonstration? Didn't I see cinnamon rolls in the back? Don't we? We, need like a, we need like a full-on demonstration on how to make cinnamon rolls. That's for a sermon for another time. But as she was making the cinnamon rolls early that Monday morning, God spoke to her and said, make a pan for this fellow. Because he was there not to be a part of the homeschool group, but he was working at the church. And so she made a pan and showed up, and uh, knowing that those two were in conflict, she just kind of went in and said, hey, uh, I made you something, and walked away. And the next week she came in and she said, hey, 
I made you something. Set him down. Thank you. He was grateful, for sure. He wasn't rude in any way. But that simple act of feeding your enemy was the pathway that God used to repair a much needed, a vital uh, a relationship in the church when it comes to ministry. The sensitivity that she had to serve him really was the, the gateway. Now, there was a lot of joking back in those days because she, she was wondering if... Uh, <laughs> he was wondering, it got to the point after about two, three, four weeks of lots of cinnamon rolls, she was wondering, he was wondering if she was fattening him up that would slow him down in his position on what the controversy, that wasn't it at all. You know, so we joked about that back in those days. But the reality is, is that they were able to really come back together and work through their issues. And it was a beautiful testimony of how when a person is sensitive to the Spirit, how as they listen to God, even a simple portion of a verse, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and respond in faith, how then that can affect our relationships one to another. See, these 20 traits, there's really 20 that I've listed here, they're kind of like three circles that are overlapping. I don't know if they are. Are they on the screen? You guys see them? All right, good. One, they reflect Jesus through us for everybody to see. They give the outside world a view of what it's like to be an overcomer. They give the outside world a view that you're not going away just because the heat's starting to rise. Because Jesus didn't go away because the heat started to rise. He just stayed steady on the course. So they reflect Christ through us. The second one on my lower left is, is that kind of the story I've just been talking about. Is they're summed up in the way that we relate one to another. The way that we care for one another. The way that we protect one another. The way that we challenge and spur one another on. Like yesterday morning was a great example of spurring one another on. It got passionate, but it was a good, passionate conversation that we don't have enough of as Christ followers. But the way that we relate, challenge, push, encourage, sharpen, the word says, the way that we relate to one another. The third corner is, is the way that we relinquish what we would like to do and give room for God to work Part of being an overcomer, it's kind of odd, it's kind of backwards in a lot of ways, but a big part of being an overcomer in Christ is really to surrender. Because in surrendering, then you can fight the right fight, you can fight the good fight. I remember Earl Nash used to say, hey, guys, we're not fighting the good fight. <laughs> we're kind of quarreling amongst ourselves. Let's all get our swords pointed in the right, same direction, in the right direction. Let's fight the good fight. It's not about not doing anything. It's about having, uh, it's about facing the same way. It's about taking on the same tasks. It's about approaching the evil in our world with the truth of the gospel. 
We can't do that if we're not relinquishing that revenge, as it were. We're not turning it over to the Lord. I said I would mention first Peter chapter 4. First Peter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice, in, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings when His glory is revealed. You may also <clears throat> be glad with exceeding joy. These verses, this epistle that was written, was written just before that fire that we talked about in Rome. To the extent that most believers, and I don't, I, I don't even think it's true today, but most believers at the time saw that as a prophetic word. The fiery trial, really? That's where we're going? That's exactly where they went. They went through a massive fire that destroyed the majority of Rome, were falsely blamed for it, and still walked in victory as overcomers in Christ. He says these words of encouragement the Apostle Paul had written to him. He said, hey, don't take revenge. Don't take revenge. Like, that doesn't reflect anything good on God. Give room for God to work out what He's going to do. The church exploded because of that persecution. Literally exploded because of what they walked through. Are we willing to endure in that sort of a way to be overcomers in a grander scheme, in a grander plan, and in a bigger way? Yesterday we looked at a few verses out of Mark chapter 8. Verses 34 and 35, and I wanted to just say this. The pathway to becoming an overcomer starts with surrender. Jesus says in verse 34, Whoever desires to come after me must <clears throat> let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What good is it to get everything and lose the one thing that, that, that we are blessed with, if you will, the one thing that, that, that God has uh, created in us that lives eternally? Only get one shot at getting out of this, off of this uh, spinning ball alive. And that's in Christ. That's it. It's only one shot. You get one shot in the flesh. Or while we're still wearing a fleshly body, I should say. You get one shot. And so what's it going to profit us to, to, to gain it all and lose the one thing that matters the most? The one thing that's created in the image of God. David's going to come and lead us into communion. The worship team can come on up. If somebody will go down and invite the kids to come on up. As they're doing so, I just want to close with these thoughts.
uh, not often do we feel like we're overcomers. That's why I said in the beginning. Not often do we feel that way. And sometimes we feel that way because of our own efforts. Both of those mindsets are uh, counter to the Word of God. They're really counter to the Word of God. Uh, we're not an overcomer based on our own faith. We're overcomers because who Christ is. And that we're trusting in who He says He is. And we're, uh, we're not not overcomers because we don't feel like we've overcame anything. And if you struggle with these things, we'd love to talk with any one of us elders. We'd love to share with you. We'd love to remind you of what the Bible says about you and about us. We'd love to remind you that we're in this together. Quick little um, word on where we're going next before we get to communion. Uh, next week we're going to have the missionaries that got, Leif and Jamie Gustafson are going to be here to share during the service. Um, they, oh boy, my mind's hundred places. They serve in Mongolia? Am I right? No, help me with that. Siberia. Siberia. Yeah, there we go. That's right. Right continent, wrong country. Add a 50-50 chance. Um, the Gustafsons will be here the next week. The week after that, actually, Les is going to preach. I'm going to be gone. And then for a few weeks after that, you didn't know I was going to be gone? I didn't clear it with you, Mom? <laughs> the good news for me is, is the Bible said that I'm no longer. I've, he's left his father and mother and cleaved to his wife. You're out of the decision-making process. Uh, I'm going to be gone. And uh, for a few weeks after, uh, in October... Tim is going to be preaching on, uh, through a series on the kingdom of God. And so I just wanted to update you guys as to kind of where things are going on Sundays for the next quite a few weeks. And, uh, and we'll go from there. So David, come on up. Lead us in communion.